Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. Last year, I appeared on the Rational Reminder podcast, a show hosted by Cameron Passmore and Ben Felix of PWL Capital, a terrific Ottawa, Canada-based wealth manager that focuses on low-cost passive investing. We discussed the depth of the institutional investment research process, hedge funds, alternatives for individuals, index fund investing around the world, lessons from the big bet, and a few other fun topics. Cameron and Ben are thoughtful investors and offer high-quality content through their podcast. I'd encourage you to have a listen. Please enjoy... 
Cameron and Ben's interview with me. This is the Rational Reminder Podcast, a weekly reality check on sensible investing and financial decision-making for Canadians. We are hosted by me, Benjamin Felix, and Cameron Passmore. Our, our guest today was uh, Ted Sidis, and he's, uh, he's the host of the Capital Allocators Podcast, which some of you may have listened to. But he's a, I don't know what you'd call him, a, a classically impressive guy. Studied at Yale and then did his MBA at Harvard, ran a hedge fund what would you call it? A fund of funds, protege partners? Yeah, and then he was trained under David Swenson, the legendary manager at Yale. So impressive pedigree, education, and experience. And then famously made that bet with Warren Buffett in 2008, right. whether or not the pool of hedge funds would beat the S&P 500. So he was on the hedge fund side, and I think most of our listeners will know how that bet turned out. So that certainly put him on the map of notoriety. That's right. If you don't know, if, if you don't know who Ted is from any of his other endeavors, you, you certainly know of the bet. And we talked about that, and he was so insightful. And this whole active versus passive world is not as black and white at certain levels of wealth. And he he took us a very nuanced discussion around that, which I thought was incredible. Oh, it shed a lot of gray light on that black and white view that it's very easy to take on the active passive discussion which is not something that I expected to feel after the conversation, but that, that's, yeah, he definitely made that happen. And he was very, he's a nice guy, well-spoken. He was very courteous. And we talked to him for a while after. It was a good conversation. Yeah. As we mentioned on one of the, one of the recent episodes, we've, uh, we've gotten more diligent with posting episodes and, and uh, putting links and useful information on the rationalreminder.ca website. So if you uh, if you have anything to say about this episode after you've listened to it, we'd appreciate it if you, uh, instead of sending us an email as much as we appreciate those, head over to the rationalreminder.ca website and comment on this episode's post. Agree. Love to see you there. And enjoy our conversation with Ted Seides. Ted, welcome to the Rational Reminder. We're so happy to have you join us. I've been a regular listener of your podcast, Capital Allocators, for a long time, and I really enjoy them, and especially the insights that you you give us into great minds in this business. Well, thanks, Cameron. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. So you started your career working with David Swenson, who was famous for managing the Yale Endowment. In a recent article, you said that David Swenson plays a different game from those in public markets. And Yale has much less, I think it's less than 25% of his portfolio in public markets. Can you talk about what you learned and what lessons you learned from David that have carried you through your career? Well, sure. I learned a lot. You know, He wrote it all up in a book. And at the time he wrote the book, I felt like I knew what was going to be on the next page. But if, you're, if you were distilling a lot of what I learned into something that's broadly applicable, I would say the core of how David approached kind of the investment problem which is pervasive, is he developed a certain set of beliefs about investing. And then he was incredibly good at communicating those beliefs to his constituents, which is his board, his team, and then being very creative about what strategy he was going to use to tie into those beliefs. 
And, you know, for David, a lot of it was in the book. It's an endowment with a long time horizon that leads to an equity orientation and diversification. And he didn't think you were truly diversified in a like a 60-40 two-asset portfolio. So he diversified across other things that looked like equity-oriented assets. And then when you really get into the weeds a little bit, what David possesses that very, very few investors of all types do is just an extreme discipline in being able to stick to the plan and being able to communicate in such a way that encourages everyone around him to stick to the plan. And then beyond that, there are all kinds of nuances that go into the process of implementation through manager selection. And so I was just fortunate to start my career working for an absolutely brilliant guy and and a great teacher and investor. Fascinating. As you're talking, I've got more questions popping into my head, but I, I do want to follow a little bit of the structure that we had that we had in mind. You started Protege Partners, which was focused on investing in and seeding small hedge funds. So obviously, between your experience with Yale and Protege Partners, you have quite a bit of experience selecting managers because that's a lot of what you were doing. What do you think, if there is one, what do you think is the most important criterion when you're selecting a manager? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's fair to distill any complex decision like that into a single criteria. If you were breaking it down, and I'd even use the framework I just mentioned about with David. So start with a set of beliefs. The particular investment problem we were trying to solve was just focused on hedge funds. So if that's your investable universe, what set of beliefs do you have? And for us, they were a fewfold. The purpose of investing in those assets or that asset class was to try to generate equity-like returns with less risk than the equity markets. And we thought, and this again was just something that I had transferred over from a subset of what was happening at Yale, the best way to do that was actually to invest in smaller funds because hedge funds inherently oftentimes are capacity-constrained strategies. Certainly felt that way you know, 20 years ago or so. And so that framed the sort of beginning of the set of beliefs that we had about how we were going to implement. Now, then when you get into that implementation, which is really the core of your question of, you know, what's the most important criteria? Well, there's probably three different buckets. What strategy the manager's pursuing, the structure or the deal between the, the LP and the GP, and then, of course, the people. I think you could take a corollary of something that, you know, Warren Buffett said about companies and industries. If you don't have the people right, everything else doesn't matter at all. In fact, in some cases can be worse for you. So there's a lot of criteria that you could create that might comprise characteristics of a manager that outperforms over the time. Some of those are kind of have to do with alignment and structure and making sure that incentives are aligned as a, as a GP and LP. A lot of it has to do with training and horsepower and insight and some of it is just innate skill and drive. What's gotten more and more difficult over the years is that there are many, many more people who fit into that set of criteria than end up outperforming in what's become an incredibly competitive marketplace. There are actually very few that possess all of those kinds of criteria and still have in an organizational structure behind them, the right kind of capital behind them that allow them to at least be structured to succeed in outperforming. And so you come to that last piece of kind of having extreme discipline. There is a, an element that you simply can't compromise on anything. Something that, well, 
you know, we really like this person, but the strategy is a little bit out of favor. We don't like the value, the underlying valuation of, you know, high yield today, but it's a distressed debt manager, whatever it is. And so trying to play through that playbook of sort of having your set of beliefs, understanding a strategy that makes sense to implement those, and then having extreme discipline to stick to it is sort of the framework we used at Protege. So that, that makes a lot of sense. When you think about public equities, which I know they're, they're, they're different things, but think about public equities, you have market beta. So if, you don't, if you're not able to go and find an, an active manager, you can just take market beta and, and call it a day. When we're talking about hedge funds or alternatives, maybe in general, you can't really do that. So do you think that it's – is it something where if you don't have the ability to go through a process like you just explained or have your own process that you think is better, if you don't have something like that, is it, is it worth pursuing the risk premiums in alternative asset classes at all? So generally speaking, I think the answer to that is no. And there's there's a lot of subtle currents that you mentioned, right? So if you compare 10 or 15 years ago to today, you now have a proliferation of products that you can invest in that comprise risk factors. So there's the basic risk factors that we know about in quality and yield and size. Those things didn't actually really exist you know, 15 or 20 years ago. So if you wanted to get exposure to small cap value and you didn't like growth, the only way to do that was in a hedge fund if you could short growth. And there are a lot of other ways you can just get the exposures today. So the where that has taken the industry is people's definition of what adding value means has changed because there are more alternatives, as that are alternative beta. So, so take a firm like AQR, which was probably the first to sort of mass proliferate different types of products. And I'd had an ongoing conversation over, over time with Cliff Asnes about, you know, once you know that there's a alternative beta in a strategy, is that strategy likely to be attractive going forward? So we could think of like a merger arb as a great example. You now can buy a mutual fund. You can buy an AQR product that give you exposure to all the mergers. But when merger arb was really interesting was when not that many people understood it and knew about it. And by the time people understand it enough to commoditize it, most of the time that alternative beta is not an equity-like expected return. It's something less. So I think the the alternative, successful hedge fund strategies. It's true of private equity as well. Most of the alternative categories are difficult to buy cheaply and get the kind of returns that people have sought in them for the last, you know, That was a 10, fantastic answer to the question. Yeah. And it prompts so many questions. I'm really curious how, you know, like Charlie Ellis was on the investment committee at Yale. Is that correct? Yeah. And so he's famous for writing Winning the Loser's Game book, which is an indexer's almost Bible, I think you could say. Can you talk about conversations and how these kinds of conversations would happen when you've got such two different worlds? Sure. I mean, and, and it's a great question. And I think to some extent, Charlie's opinion has changed since I, I mean, I first met Charlie in the early 90s when I worked at Yale. There are, and you know, I've had a few endowment chief investment officers on my podcast, Scott Mall passed from Notre Dame and Andy Golden at Princeton University and Jim Williams at the Getty Foundation, who have been in their seats for you know, 15, 20, 30 years. And most of the people in those seats pursuing these strategies all will tell you that there are only a few dozen pools of capital 
that are properly structured to pursue these and succeed. Wow. It requires an army of people, a small army of people, a small army of talented people. It requires a governance board that fully understands the investment strategies and has the patience to pursue them through difficult times. And I think that's right. I think that it's, you know, for me, sitting outside of Yale, I can't possibly do what Yale would do. So let me give you one recent example of that, relatively recent example. I have a friend who has been subject to due diligence from one of these institutions and was talking to him recently about how the process was going. And he said, yeah, I think it's, I think it's going well. He said, we just had our sixth meeting. They were here for eight hours. To which I said, oh, well, you know, what they do in eight? Well, we visited a company with them. They walked through our positions. They updated. Most people don't have the time to dedicate to that type of due diligence. And most people don't have the opportunity to get in that type of depth. And by the way, this institution may not even invest with this manager. Amazing. And so to put some color on the on the the, the depth and the quality of research that, that some of these endowed institutions put in the problem, I, I think there's a reason why, you know, the returns of say the top endowments and foundations are better than others pursuing these types of strategies. So when you think about that, think about that level of due diligence and, and the process that's involved with picking a manager, allocating to a manager. Once that decision has been made, how do you know whether it was a good decision or not? How do you know that you're getting the outcome that you expected? Well, the first thing you, you go in knowing is that you will, you will absolutely have the data to figure out if that was a decision probably in 30 or 40 years. So you know that you can't do that quantitatively, right? That lends you to determining what's the appropriate process to create so that you can make a decision if you need to make a change. And that starts with having you know, some type of hypothesis about why you're investing that's not tied to short-term returns. It might be tied to disprovable hypotheses about the underlying investment strategy. It might be tied to your beliefs about the most important people that are there and how engaged they are. It might be tied to a quality of a team. In some instances, it might be tied to the pursuit of an idiosyncratic innovative investment strategy that you're fully cognizant may go away at some point in time, or that inefficiency or arbitrage may go away. And so in different situations, you can have different hypotheses. And then through recurring ongoing due diligence and meeting with people over time and, and talking to people about what's happening in their, their portfolios, you're sort of consistently retesting and pushing on that hypothesis, knowing all along that there's a lot more noise in the short-term results than there is signal. And of course, that's different across asset classes. So to, to give you one example in the hedge fund space where I spent a lot of time there is, you know, Soros talks about reflexivity. There is reflexivity in hedge fund organizations from investment returns. So if a hedge fund is not performing well, they could lose good people to other organizations, which makes it more difficult for them to perform well in the future. And they tend to be more dynamic organizationally than, say, a long-only value manager who has very low turnover in their positions. So in different asset classes and different strategies – you may have to think about time horizons a little bit differently. Wow. So a lot of our listeners are 
retail investors. Do you think the average retail investor saving for retirement should consider an allocation to hedge funds? Mostly, no. Mostly, they should not. And I say mostly because there are some interesting changes in dynamics and what's happening in the hedge fund landscape that might allow retail investors with the, with the right kind of access to access some good funds. So let me, let me put a little more color on that. What's happened, particularly in the last 10 years, is a significant concentration in the hedge fund industry. It means the large firms are getting bigger and bigger and are effectively hoovering up talent that wasn't able to sustain itself at a small firm. And the reason that that's relevant is that some of these large firms, and you could, you may know, you know, some of the brand names are places like Citadel and Millennium and D.E. Shaw and Two Sigma and Lone Pine. Lone Pine's not quite the, the right example. Viking is a good example. These large firms have continued to perform to their investors' expectations, and they are now you know, mostly 30 to $50 billion in assets. So if a retail investor has access to a large manager and believes that the market for talent is, is efficient or is increasingly efficient in the hedge fund space, which I believe it is, they may be able to get an allocation that's quite different from what they'd be able to get anywhere in the public markets and understand they're not necessarily going to know a lot about what's going on, but there are a lot of really, really smart people that do. And that's a little bit of a dangerous strategy. But if you knew what I know, I would say if you're able to get access to some of the very, very successful, talented hedge funds today, that actually might be a good way to go. Now, somewhere along the way, you need to have access to someone who's paying attention to what's happening there, because sometimes these organizations can change. And, and that's a... It's a bit of a risky strategy, but we're also talking at a time where most people look at public market valuations and in the equity and bond markets and wonder if just the underlying betas will allow them to meet whatever their liability requirements is spending for individuals or you know institutions. And if that's the case, you know that's the reason why some of these talented hedge fund managers have continued to grow because. You need to find another way to make a buck if the easy, simple, passive way isn't going to get you there. But access has to be it, it has to be restricted, I think, by definition, right? There's only so much alpha that can go around. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it it's is hard. hard. It's hard. I mean, I think the default to the answer to that question, the default is no. The default is the average retail investor probably should not be investing in these strategies. Okay. I think there are exceptions and sometimes the exceptions can be big. But you know, it's not something I recommend for my parents as an it's example. It's a great way to put it. You gained quite a bit of notoriety or, or whatever you want to call it with your bet with Buffett. You're, if if you Google your name, yeah. that uh, maybe your podcast comes up more than the bet now. But after the bet with Buffett, it, it would be easy to label you as someone that does not believe that investing in index funds is a good thing just because of the side of the bet that you were on. So what do you think about index funds? So I think it's funny that you said that. It would be easy to label me that way. That that really is based on a perception of someone making some assumptions that may or may not be correct. I have always thought that index funds are a terrific tool for most investors. And I say most because most investors do not know why they might be beating the market. And you have this wonderful opportunity to just join the market and pay next to nothing for it. As I mentioned earlier, you know, it's not clear to me that just doing that will 
be a great outcome for a lot of people, you know, for the next five or 10 or 20 years, but it may be the best alternative for people who don't otherwise know that they're pursuing a strategy that's likely to beat the market because for sure, all these other strategies are expensive. So no, I, I'm a huge fan of index funds and always have been, but you know, I made a particular bet <laughs> at a particular point in time so people can make whatever assumptions they want about what I think. Given there's only so much alpha to go around, I assume there's very little fee compression in the hedge fund world or is that a false assumption? It is a really interesting question today because the hedge fund world has very much become a binary setting of the haves and have-nots. So for the industry as a whole, there is fee compression. For a long time, I would say that the industry fee looked like a 1.5% management fee and a 20% incentive fee. And for most of the participants in the hedge fund industry, the fees are lower than that today and continue to come down. Now, I say it's binary because there have been a few recent examples of larger funds that in order to restrain their asset size have been increasing their fees. So one of the ones I mentioned earlier, D.E. Shaw, earlier this year, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think they went from two and a half and 25 to three and 30. And it was a, it was a mechanism that they were trying to use so that their clients could self-select. They wanted to restrain their asset size. And would this be also in the institutional world? Didn't matter who the client was? Didn't matter who the client was. Wow. So when investors of all types are absolutely willing to pay for real alpha, and when it exists, people will pay very richly for it and are happy to do so. Which is exactly what you'd expect if the market is, if that market is efficient. If you have consistent alpha, you will raise your fees and people will pay. That's one plausible outcome. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned your parents. If you had to tell your parents, or if you do tell your parents how to invest their money, what do you tell them? Well, my parents don't listen to me when it comes to investing anyway. <laughs> and they're older, so it's pretty traditional. I had a, an uncle who passed away a couple of years that was the chairman of Capital Group in California, the wonderful mutual fund company. And so my parents have always had their equity allocations invested with capital. It was very comfortable for them because it, there was a personal familiarity to it. And it was very comfortable for me because it's a wonderful organization, terrific way to get exposure. And my parents have had some mix of a stock bond portfolio through Capital's funds. And as they've gotten older, they shift more and more towards bonds. I mean, it's a fairly, a fairly simple asset allocation and a, and a fairly straightforward path to try to get them what they need you know, as they're now retired and, and living off of those savings. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. 
That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So you live in a country where indexing is absolutely exploding with the popularity of Vanguard and iShares, much more so than, than we're experiencing in Canada. Do you have concerns about too much of the market becoming indexed? Not anytime soon. There, you know, I've had this conversation with Charlie Ellis and a bunch of other people. People can go back and forth on what percentage of the market needs to be active in order to have efficient price discovery. And if, if you ask Charlie, he says 10%. You know, other people think we're close to that point. Passive per se in terms of investment allocation isn't troubling. What is troubling is the ramifications that has on the governance of the underlying companies that will drive the returns. So you could imagine if you have 95% passive investors, that corporate executives could do whatever they want because their shareholder base would never turn over. And that's a real problem. And we have some problems in the US relating to the short-termism that is set up in incentive structures and in executive compensation and and how managers are paid and all kinds of things that have not been addressed for a long time. And there, there are some people starting to, or at least starting to try to address that. But in terms of actual size, my hunch is that there's still a very large universe of dollars that should be a natural audience for index funds in the U.S., but are still in some more active strategy, mostly owing to that history and tradition and less the, the conscious decision that a low-cost alternative is better for that person. You kind of just answered the question that I, that I want to ask, but I'm going to ask you to dig into it a little bit more. In the States, less so. In, in Canada, there are still a ton of assets invested in public equities in actively managed mutual funds with high fees. So I agree there, there's probably alpha in, in hedge funds if you know where to look. But in, in public markets, it's a bit more dicey. Why, why, do you think, why do you think people are still investing in that stuff? <laughs> if you want to be really aggressive, there's probably some percentage of money that is not financially literate to understand these trends. So I, I have no idea how to put numbers on that. That's kind of the skeptical end of it. I think that the US market for index funds is actually quite different from most other markets around the world in that, say, the S&P 500 is very diverse with a lot of global leading companies. If you were to look in, say, emerging markets, there are a lot of countries where the index is dominated by a very small number of enterprises, and they tend to be either a state-owned enterprise or a utility. They're not the sort of dynamic companies in the economies. And so just an active strategy to not be forced to own certain concentrated names makes a lot of sense in a lot of countries around the world. In the US, it's just less the case. I mean, there are concentrations or there's concentration in technology that's really driven the S&P 500 the last, you know, 10 years or so, but there's just it's just a dynamic diverse economy and so I think that's one of the reasons why index funds make a lot of sense in the US and probably make more sense in the US. You know, I don't really know the composition of the Canadian economy, but I know there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of minerals and mining. And, and the question is, do you want all your assets exposed, not only to those sectors, but those are the sectors by definition that are going to drive the economy. And so you could be working in some other part of the Canadian economy. And if you had all your money in the same 
drivers of GDP and that softened and the country starts doing worse, are you more at risk of getting laid off? Is the banking sector more at risk because it's lending to you know real estate that's owned by people in that sector? So the more concentrated an economy is into a certain sector, the less diversification you get by investing your personal assets in that sector as well. You've been around very wealthy families and hedge fund managers that also have very high levels of wealth. I'm curious your observations as to how wealthy people behave and how they decide to invest their money as their wealth level increases. I think there's a lot of different ways to answer that. There's a difference between people who have money and then people who acquire money over time. The one thing that's consistent across those people is once they have some comfort of financial flexibility, they kind of do what they want. And there's a line that Charlie Ellis actually mentioned earlier, taught me a long time ago. He said, money makes people more so, or money makes people more of what they already are. And so, you know, someone who's generous might become more generous. Someone who is greedy might become more greedy because there's just, there's less resistance and, and people treat them a certain way, but they just have the flexibility to do what they want. In terms of how they invest your money, I watched this very carefully kind of in the hedge fund industry. You do see people as they generate a lot of wealth often get a little bit more conservative. So most people that have substantial amounts of wealth that wasn't inherited made it by taking significant risk. And once they make it, they don't necessarily continue to take significant risk with it. So people may diversify. They may get a little more conservative in what it is they were doing. And that's, that's sort of some of the effect of how you see people change with different levels of wealth. You mentioned concerns about market beta going forward, and I, I agree, valuations are high. That, that's a bit scary. If you talk to someone with, I don't know, $200 million to allocate today, in, in broad terms, what, what would you be telling them to do? Well, I think that conversation has to, you know, I've been involved in this exercise with a good friend of mine in the last couple of years. That conversation has to start with who's the person what are they trying to accomplish? You know, how they want to get there. And that doesn't mean, hey, I need this money for my living expenses, certainly at that size of, of wealth. But some people with $200 million desperately want to make right. $2 billion. And some people with $200 million desperately don't want to lose $20 right. million and get to 180 So depending on what their objectives are dramatically colors a strategy. Now, if you had a pool of capital that had a lot of duration to it because there wasn't a lot of spending and that size, I would be quite equity oriented. You can start with a baseline of, of different market exposures that you want access to in the public markets. And then, you know, as I'm managing that capital, I'm going to lean on relationships with managers that I've had over the years that I think are truly exceptional and invest capital with them and then constantly be looking for something interesting, new and different. So interesting. Through this conversation and other conversations that I've had recently, the importance of relationships, if you're seeking something more than market beta, the importance of relationships has come up repeatedly, which I find very interesting. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, it, it, long ago when I started in this business, it really felt like a relationship business. And then it got away from it for a while because Wall Street, and certainly in the hedge fund space, Wall Street came in and effectively intermediated. They had capital introduction groups that whose job it was to match buyers and sellers. But after a while, there was so much of that activity that it sort of gravitated back to relationships again. But yeah, I, I think that having the right networks 
to be able to access and find great investment ideas is is pretty important. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, where we started, some of these large endowments have been able to perpetuate returns because they have long histories of being demonstrated to be a very long-term, very supportive, and very critical investor. And the managers who have benefited from that over a long period of time are more than happy to refer to them the people they think also meet their high standards. And that is a network of people that the vast, you know, almost nobody else has access to. Amazing, yeah. On a recent podcast, we talked about how the last 10 years of the returns in the U.S. market were so outside of the expected realm of possibility. It was an extreme event. And this is also the same time period where you had your your famous bet we talked about earlier with Warren Buffett. Can you talk about how that how you look back on that bet and how that bet might have affected you personally? Oh, sure. Those are two different things. I mean, there's an investment side and then there's a personal side. You know, on the investment side, I think anytime you're involved in markets or anytime you're involved in any decisions, you want to try to get better at making decisions. And I went into the bet with a certain hypothesis that didn't really have to do with hedge funds being superior to the market. They're, they're quite different. They're really apples and oranges. But it's not hard to recall what happened in 2008 in the public markets. And this bet started in January 1 of 2008. And so I went into the bet thinking, boy, with the valuation as high as it was on the S&P 500, and, and most everybody fairly complacent that that is a long-term trend that will just continue, you pretty much want to be invested anywhere else. And that Warren saying, oh, hedge funds couldn't beat the market was just a bad bet. This was my hypothesis because he was picking the S&P at a historical all-time high. And so whether it was hedge funds or treasury bills or real estate or farmland, it almost didn't matter. I would have taken that bet against the S&P 500. Now, as it played out, that was the wrong bet. It looked really good for about a year and a half. And then you know the Fed came in and and the S&P over that 10-year period, despite starting at a historically high level, had historically average returns. So then you look back and say, okay, was I wrong? You know, did, I, did I miss something? Did, did you miss that the market's always going to recover itself? And I, at one point, I, I called Warren and I said, hey, I'm trying to figure out like my own decision process here. You know, when we started the bet, my partners and I had said, we thought we had, I don't remember what the number was, an 80 or 85% chance of winning. And you said you had a 60% chance of winning. But now when you talk about it, you make it sound like it was a fait accompli, that because of the fees, you were always going to win. So do you remember why you said 60%? Was it because the market was rich? Did he said, nah, I don't really remember. So he didn't have a robust thesis. He was just plying it, you know, to hope to make the point that fees, you know, in the hedge fund world are expensive. So I came out of it saying, you know, I actually still don't think it was a bad bet at the time. There was one outcome. It ended up being a bad outcome. It was over a long period of time. I tried to write that up. And when you write something up, people give you all kinds of flack for it in, in public, but that's fine. Personally, it's been incredible. Right, I, I had never met Warren before. I've spent a lot of time with him. And it was this interesting platform to be able to talk in some nuance about you know, these kinds of issues and all kinds of issues. And, and all kinds of neat things happened from the time I spent with Warren. Everything from 
everything from Jack Bogle showing up at his annual meeting that actually came out of one of the dinners I had in Omaha to, you know, a few other pretty niche cool things uh, that you never could have anticipated and 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 some terrific friendships came out of it. And I guess, you know, there's some infamous name recognition which is fine, but I didn't really care about one way or the other. What a great story. Thank you for sharing. All right, so uh, valuations are high again. Would you make the bet again? Now? So I got asked this a lot over the last couple of years, and I, I said I would not make the bet again, but let me explain why. I wouldn't make the bet again because I don't think the odds of winning are as favorable as they were you know, now 12 years ago. I don't think the market's priced any differently, but hedge funds have changed a lot. The assets managed in these hedge fund strategies is a multiple of what it was 12 years ago, so the competition is higher. You have the impact of all of this proliferation of ETFs and factor-based products and what that does to the markets. You have a movement of quantitative investing, and that's really making it difficult for fundamentally driven investors to short stocks and be successful. So there are a lot of dynamics that would lead me to believe that the expected return on a long-short equity hedge fund, a similar long-short equity hedge fund, is going to be lower going forward than it was. And then there's this one factor that's the easiest to describe and the most impactful on hedge fund returns that very few people talk about, which is simply the, the nominal level of interest rates. So when the, the bet started, short-term rates were maybe, I don't remember what it was, but 4%. And today they're close to zero. And that is a 4% or maybe 3% annual difference in performance just because of the short rebate on, on the, the way long short funds are constructed. And so that's a very meaningful detriment to hedge fund returns in the current environment. So I, I think that it's probably 50-50 if you had a good hedge fund portfolio versus the market for the next 10 years. But I would never make what I thought was a 50-50 bet in public with Warren Buffett. Okay. Got it. I just want to shift gears for a bit. We share with you the same podcast producer and Matt Passy, and, and, and you told us earlier that that is thanks to you making the introduction to our common contacts. So shout out to Matt. Can you talk about the impact that your podcast, The Capital Allocators, has had? Has it been a surprising experience? What, what has come of it? Sure. Well, it's been really terrific. And, and again, big shout out to Matthew. Many of the investment podcasts that people listen to are produced by him, and he, he really does an extraordinary job, makes all of us seem much better at this than we actually are. So I started the podcast as a way to kind of connect more broadly with people I knew in the investment community in a way that I was able to when I was only focused on hedge fund strategies. And it's been a, that's been a lot of fun. And I just have a great passion for connecting with both people and ideas. And those two can go together, but are also quite separate. So it's been, you know, personally, that's been very rewarding. I think there's been a pleasant surprise and you sort of mentioned it in Google searching my name. I assumed that no matter what, the bet and having lost the bet to Warren would be sort of part of my public legacy. And I wasn't going to be able to do anything about that. I was not expecting that doing a podcast would broaden you know, people's at least knowledge of me and what I've done. And, and in particular, like I mentioned, when you write something that you think is thoughtful and, and you put it out in public, as I did a few times relating to the bet, people mostly still would see me as an arrogant hedge fund guy. They'd make the same assumptions that Ben talked about earlier about, oh, you must love hedge funds. You must hate the index fund. You must think this is terrible for everybody. People make all kinds of assumptions. But when you're, when you're 
on a podcast or interviewing people, you're, you're putting yourself out. It's your voice. It's your thoughts and ideas. And, and that's been rewarding because I, I've been around the, the industry a long time and I thought I knew lots of people, but the breadth and quality of the people I've been able to connect with just from having done this has been, has been really extraordinary. So it's been a real gift personally and professionally. I've been pleasantly surprised by the amount of goodwill it generates. You know, on my show, I do the interviews. I think I'm not the, you know, I do maybe five or 10% of the talking. It's the people who come on who do all the, all the heavy lifting. And, and yet because of the audience, all kinds of, almost every single guest gets some, you know, at the least dozens and dozens of positive emails from friends. And in many instances, some positive business development or otherwise, so that's been just terrific and kind of building up, I call it building up goodwill on my personal balance sheet. When you think about how you spend your time, obviously the podcast takes a lot of time, I'm assuming. I know ours, ours takes quite a bit of time to prepare for. But when you think about how you spend your time, what do you wish that you could do more of? You know, I think we all wish we had more time. I think I'd love to find a way to sleep more. <laughs> Probably not wish what you had in mind. I have been engaged in a bunch of different things without one full professional activity for the last couple of years. So that's allowed me to do the podcast. I've been working with a friend of mine, helping him kind of oversee his portfolio. I've been always thinking about what bigger thing might I find to do next. And so I, I've actually done this at a period of time where I feel like I've, I've had a tremendous amount of time. And maybe it's the opposite. Maybe the way I'd like to be spending more of my time now is to be more deeply focused on investing or, or with an investment management firm. And that's probably the direction I'm headed and hopefully can bring the podcast alongside. Very cool. So as you move into that potentially next stage, how do you define success for yourself? I'm always reminded of a dear friend of mine who I went to business school with. And she tells me that on the day we graduated, I said to her, I wish her all of success in the world, whatever that means to her. Now, I don't remember saying it, but it resonated so strongly with her that she remembers. And so for me, the most important barometer of success is my personal happiness and fulfillment. And that takes all kinds of forms and family and relationships, professional engagement. A newer one is deep authenticity and trying to be very true to myself and the people that are around me. There's always some measure of financial success, which I define as sort of an absence of having to worry about whatever it is, the future. I certainly had some success at Protégé and then life circumstances changed. And so I still have much of the same worry that many people do, but it would be nice to get to a point where I didn't have to worry about that. And then the last, the last one, the one I've been sort of focusing more on in the last few years is, is ensuring a high volume of quality connection with other people. What a great answer. And I must say, Ted, I echo what you're saying about the podcast. And, and this is this experience of interviewing and getting a chance to meet you is an example of that. You know, we started this podcast inspired by, you know, the guys at Animal Spirits. And we have a mutual friend in, in Barry Ritholtz who we met through podcasting. It's been an amazing, you know, a year, a little bit more than a year for Ben and I. And I really want to say thanks to you for being willing to join us on our podcast and Hopefully you keep up your podcast for a long time because I am a huge fan of it. So thanks, Ted, very much for your time. Thanks, Cameron. Really Thank appreciate you, it. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. 
If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 